This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. This episode features a conversation I had with Nicholas Coleridge. Now, he's not a household name, but he's a big cheese, he's a big noise in the world of magazine publishing. When I talked to him, he was managing director of Condé Nast magazines. And Condé Nast, what do they publish? Vogue, Vanity Fair, Glamour, Brides, GQ, uh, Traveller. I mean, the whole lot. And he was the boss. This man is very big cheese. So why was he talking to me? Well, the reason was he had a book out called Street Smart. And any author will always talk to anybody if there's the slightest chance of selling a few more copies. And this story in Street Smart is about a magazine editor who dies and and leaves the title to her war correspondent and photojournalist brother. So anyway, when I started talking to Nicholas Coleridge, I just sort of basked in the glamour. People do want to be on the front cover of Vogue and Vanity Fair and Tatler and GQ. Absolutely they do. And yes, um, we are rather courted by companies that want to have their latest clothes or their latest this or that shown. But then um, I work in Vogue House, which is round the corner from where we're talking now. And there's about 600 people who come in every day. Most of them not at all boring. It's a kind of um, environment where people have very strong feelings and very great passions. And it's one of the things that makes makes it an interesting world to work in. If you're managing director, presumably every gripe as well as every triumph comes inevitably to you. Well, the gripes, yes, the triumphs, no, because they're, of course, the preserve of the editors. Um, But anything that goes wrong, I take full responsibility for it, yeah. Is it a young person's game? No, not entirely. I I guess I don't know what the average age is of people who work for us, probably 30. So um, so, um, we get a lot of young people who come and go. But some of our top editors, the editor of Vogue and the editor of World of Interiors and magazines like that, no, they're grown-up people. And we we sure need a few of them in the the mix. (laughs) Well, I I, I ask because your book starts... Um, in a very, very glamorous party. Uh, there's the A, I didn't even know there was an A list and a double A list. Uh, <laughs> How many people are on the double A list? Is that oh, very I sure? think about 100 around the world. Yes, okay. Um, and your magazine editor, she's in her 30s, very glamorous, and she gives something like 30 seconds if you're on the A list, 45 seconds if you're double A. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Actually, it's a very odd world, the magazine world, because it's both, on one level, a very shallow world, and on the other other level, um, a rather a complex world, in that magazines are perpetually locked in a kind of trench warfare, one against each other. Every Friday, I know how all ten of our magazines are performed against the opposition. And when they fail, they can lose money faster than it's possible to believe. So everyone in them is very tense. Every editor has at least six people in their office who want to be the next editor. So you get that tremendous sense of survival of the fittest and people fighting for their position all the time. And it's one of the reasons that I find it a really interesting backdrop in which to write thrillers. I've always loved reading about other people's worlds, I, even though I have no interest in horse racing 
at all. I love to read Dick Francis, and everything that I know about banking comes from the, the, those clutch of, <laughs> yeah. of financial thriller writers. I love that way of being able to tell what somebody else's world is like. And so I've set Street Smart and my previous book with friends like these um, against what I try to make a very authentic background of the business and the glamour of magazines, but then with, uh, I hope, real people <laughs> in yeah. them. There's a bit here then um, where the magazine has a kind of company song where they're kind of rah, rah, rah from A to Z. <laughs> you don't really do that. Do My you? goodness me, in England we would never do that. But in America, absolutely they do. I cannot tell you they're like cheerleaders in that country. But uh, that was just a, a piece of fun in an American, in an American scene. Yeah, phew, that's all right then. <laughs> uh, but your editor, if you're the editor, is it as much about... Is it partly about being seen in the right company as much as being a good editor? I think editors today, magazine editors, have really quite a complicated double life that they have to lead in that they have to, of course, by, be brilliant editors. They have to be brilliant at deciding what to put in the magazine and the choice of the content is crucial. But they also, I think, increasingly project it and create excitement around it, which means being able to talk on television um, able to persuade stars to go on the cover. The when we have a great star on Vanity Fair or on the front cover of Vogue, you can be sure that Marie Claire, that Cosmopolitan, that Elle, all our competitors have been trying to work that same celebrity and working with their press department. Who's going to get Robbie Williams? Who's going to get whoever else it be? Who's going to get Uma Thurman, who really shifts copies? Um, everyone's competing and so you need an editor who's like a showman and in Street Smart Saskia Thompson I think is a is an ultimate showman editor she's a little bit like Tina Brown who's probably the most famous editor in the world perhaps a little touch of Anna Winter the editor of American Vogue little touch of three or four others but of course she isn't them because this isn't a, a isn't a Roman Acle. She's She's a complex character. What does her brother do? Her brother, Max, is a war correspondent. And the story in Street Smart is that Saskia, who's this great venerated editor, is suddenly, mysteriously, found dead in her apartment. And at first it seems like suicide. And the magazine, which is called Street Smart, passes to her brother, Max, who's an absolutely different kind of character. He's a quite tough war correspondent and he's had rather an uneasy relationship with his sister all their life and he's always very much looked down on the magazine world that he's thought of as being rather trivial and rather rather feeble and of course terribly unimportant compared with his own work photographing famine and war and horrors around the world and he finds that in her will he's been left the magazine and that he has to to run it for a period of time until her son can take it over. So he's thrust. It's that classic thing of someone from an outsider being thrown into the middle of a world of which they know nothing, which gives me a chance really to explain it through Max's eyes as he comes in. And of course, slowly he gets to find that it's tougher in glossy magazines than it is at the, at, in, a, in a war zone. And um, towards the end of the book, we find things out about his sister. Um, and it's surprising that she has this son and nobody knows who the father is. Yep. Now, 
I suppose one would think in the, in the milieu in which she moves that the father could be a rock star, a famous photographer, or whatever. But um, I, I won't give away who it is, but this reveals that the, the surface, the, 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 the little bit that you see on the surface of these people conceals other things. There's other things going on. Well, I hope that as one goes on in the book, one finds that Saskia Thompson, who starts off as a character of surface, is in fact like the bottom half of a huge iceberg. She's much more complicated and more unhappy than one at first uh, um, one first realizes. And um, one of the things that I hope in Street Smart works is that um, they're not stereotypical characters and they're more they're more complex and, and more interesting as a result. The celebrity thing is just a patina. Is that how it is? I mean, um, I, from my point of view, if I meet celebrities, you, you sometimes get f the feeling of this sort of vacuum that really it's like beauty, isn't it? Celebrity really is in the eye of the beholder. I think increasingly, if, I, if, I was, if you want me to talk just generally about celebrity, I think that increasingly celebrity is shorter than it used to be, and I think based on less, and the rewards are greater. You only, of course, have to look at, I guess, I don't know, posh spice, let's choose. You just know that there's a one year left. It's like a clock ticking away, and people increasingly milk it for all that they're worth worth, including, I guess, magazines. People have become, this has become a celebrity culture for a lot of people in the world. Celebrity magazines sell immensely strongly. People seem to have a, a, an extraordinary global fascination with reading about the same celebrities. Yes, I mean, I only ask you about that because it is pertinent to the plot of this book and it is pertinent to your life. Mm. And, I, and I wonder, in your position with the people you work with, and, and people like Saskia, do they subscribe to the celebrity myth or can they step back? I think most people live a double life when they work in this world. Um, and I think Saskia Thompson, the heroine, is, is true of that too. I think during you know, 80% of the time, this driving ambition for your magazine to succeed, which often needs celebrities as part of it. But then there's another side to people's lives, the home life, and the, I, I enjoy Saskia's relationship with her son, Cody, um, people's relationship with their parents. Um, and, and I think that the balancing of these two sides of, of life are what make the story interesting. The two sides of your life, I mean, running this magazine empire, running a family, <laughs> That's, that's the two sides, mm. and the third of these two sides is writing these books. When? How? Oh, I write, I'm so disciplined about writing. I'm almost boringly disciplined. I write every Saturday and every Sunday morning, and I start on the dot of seven o'clock, never later and never earlier, and I write till 11.30. And at the minute it gets to 11.30, I stop. And then the rest of the day is for my children. I take them swimming or bicycling or whatever we're going to do. But I just find that by carving out those three and a half, four hours, twice a week, eight hours. Um, I can completely go into my head and work on this book. And I find it quite releasing because otherwise I have a tendency to dwell on what's happened during the week. Mm. Um, and by Friday night, my head is full of complaints and problems and competitiveness. And this allows me to live in a parallel world. I absolutely adore writing these books. I get so much pleasure out of it and, 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 it's, and, it, and, it's, and it just gives me a break. But you can be creative to order 
at, at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning, I will be creative. Well, now that's impressive. Sometimes it takes a while to get going. I sometimes <laughs> stare at the sheet of paper for a, for a long time before anything comes. But I think the important thing, and I guess anyone who writes books would tell you this, that you simply just have to, unless you're holding a pen in your hand or sitting over a word processor, nothing's going to happen. I mean, it's all slog in the end. That's the remarkably successful and charming Nicholas Coleridge talking to me about his novel Street Smart. This is the Author Archive.